Our Father, we again thank you for this wonderful occasion that we get to gather as your people, as we do each Lord's Day, commemorating the resurrection, our Lord Jesus, your resurrection from the dead, that led to your ascension, that led to the sending of the Holy Spirit, the formation of the church, and we are the evidence of a new humanity, one changed, given life because of your faithful work because of your faithfulness, O God, to your promises, because of your eternal purpose to redeem for yourself a people and your son as adopted sons and daughters, to be forever with you in the joyful worship, the joy of worship and fellowship and eternal praise and delight in all that you have made. So, Lord, we ask you now to be our teacher as we open up your word briefly together. And, Lord, again, be our encourager as we hear these testimonies of your saving grace and delight in your mercy, O Christ, not only in their lives, but for us who know you to remember it in our own. And for those who don't and are outside of Christ, that this may be the day that they consider their condition and turn and trust in you. And so to this end, we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, as it's been noted several times, we have uh, the privilege this morning of hearing three testimonies of uh, God's saving grace. It's always a highlight for us. We always love baptisms and uh, are always so encouraged to hear uh, them clearly proclaim what God has done uh, in their lives. Uh, But we want to take a few moments before before we hear these testimonies to consider the very heart of the gospel that they are going to proclaim and that they have embraced, or we should say the Christ whom they have embraced. And so we're going to look briefly, and you can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. This is, of course, Paul's great establishment of the very theme of the gospel, which is itself, or the very theme of Romans, which is itself an explanation, a full expansion of the explanation of the glory of God and all of his saving accomplishments and work in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as many of you know, this is the great portion of Scripture Uh, that was used to rescue the gospel in what we now identify as the Protestant Reformation. It rescued the gospel from centuries of darkness under the Roman Catholic system of saints and works and ignorances and ignorance and indulgences and spiritual darkness that really ruled over much of the world for so long. The Roman Catholic Church preyed upon the base pride of man that saw the great institutional power of the church and the ability of man to work along with grace to complete justification and make themselves acceptable to God. That man working along through the church could so obtain salvation in the sense of completing the work of Christ. It is that false gospel and that false authority of the church and that false understanding of the grace grace that held so many captive and was a weapon that actually persecuted for many, many years those who felt faithfully held to the gospel. And so the question that always lies before man that Paul addresses here is how then are we to be made righteous before God? How are we able to stand in the presence of an absolute holy God? The fancy word for that is how are we to be justified? How are we to be declared righteous? How can we be made saints, holy and acceptable to God? Again, this is the gospel that was rescued and even from this very passage 
It was the rescue of the gospel that shattered all that preceded it in darkness as it brought great light back to humanity as it unfolded scripture, as it returned to the authority of sufficiency of scripture, and as it pointed to the only mediation between God and men, and that is the man Christ Jesus. So let me read these verses, and obviously we're going to just take a very broad view uh, of them, but I want us to remind uh, uh, from these passages the, the highlights and the essence of the gospel. So let me read for you, beginning in verse 14 uh, to verse 17. I am under obligation, Paul says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. I want to note several high points here. First, let's notice then the proclamation of the gospel. Paul's proclamation of the gospel He says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. And he is eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. He is eager to proclaim the gospel. He says he is under obligation to proclaim the gospel. He's declaring that it is his heart's desire and passion to proclaim the gospel to the church that is in Rome. Let's consider why is he under obligation? What does he mean to say he is under obligation? Why why does he use this phrase? It is, in essence, because God has commissioned him as an apostle to the Gentiles. God has entrusted him with the gospel, which he has mentioned several other times in his epistles. God has entrusted him with the gospel to proclaim it, to establish it in the Gentile world. He is the one, he is under commission by God to be his representative of the truth of who Christ is and what Christ accomplished on the cross. He is also under obligation not only because of his apostolic ministry, but he's under obligation because he knows the truth which is for the good and the salvation of all men. And so there is an impulse as well to declare that which is for the salvation of men who are otherwise under God's just judgment. He says in verse 5, he says, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all of the Gentiles for his name's sake. And it is that apostleship that puts him under obligation. And it is the greatness of the message that burdens his heart and makes him eager to share it with the church there who is at Rome. It is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the glorious and great news of God's salvation to sinners. It is an obligation then that while we do not share in Paul's mission and role as an apostle, that every Christian should feel. Indeed, it is a mark of salvation to have a desire to evangelize, to have a desire to tell others about Christ. That is a fruit of the work of the Spirit. It is a divine commission even to the church when Christ said all authority had been given to him on heaven and earth and therefore they, his disciples, and then through them those who would believe to go out into all of the earth making disciples of all of the nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. 
It is a work of the Spirit in giving this genuine faith in Christ to want to declare that Christ to others. And there is a sense then a burden that we all feel to, feel to declare the message of Jesus Christ, God's saving grace in Christ Jesus. And he says he is eager. He is eager because of the glory of this message. But notice here he is eager to preach it to who? He says, to you also who are in Rome. In other words, to the church. He's writing to the church. This isn't a general letter that was to go out as a pamphlet through all of Rome and all of the temples. He's writing to the church that consisted of Jew and Gentile. In other words, he's writing to those who had already declared faith in the gospel. Why? Well, one is, has already been noted because he had a unique role as an apostle. He had a unique authority as an apostle. And so him as a representative of Christ and with apostolic authority wanted to establish the gospel for a church that he had not yet had the opportunity to visit. And God had not yet directed his steps there. But he wanted to establish for them the gospel because of this unique role that he had. As a matter of fact, he says that in verse 1, he is a bondservant of Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He says in verse 11, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. He wants them to be established. He wants them to partake of his spiritual gift of apostleship and establish them in the gospel. But there's another reason. It is because the gospel is the very foundation of the health of the church and every believer. Believers never outgrow the gospel. We don't start with the gospel, the saving knowledge of Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his sending of the Spirit. We go on to, and then go on to persevere to the deeper things of, the, of Scripture. While we should grow in our maturity, and we definitely are called to grow in maturity and the ability to understand the more... The, the, all of Scripture and the deep things, as it were, of the gospel, the profound things, we never outgrow the gospel. Believers never tire of hearing the gospel. Every hope and joy, strength and confidence, the very spiritual lifeblood that runs through a Christian's veins is what God has accomplished in the person and work of Christ for all who have trusted him. We never tire of the gospel. We never tire of hearing him speak to us in his word. If somebody were to hear the gospel and then to leave and say, oh, well, I've heard all of that before. And that might, in their mind, give a sense of spirituality and maturity of, look, I've already moved past that. But in fact, it's just the opposite. It shows blindness and ignorance. It shows a pride, a lack of that love for the things that God has accomplished for them. And the sense of an awareness that there is daily the need to be reminded of that. Daily the need to evaluate our life by it. Daily the need to stand on the rock of Christ alone through what he has done for us and to live for him. And so Paul knows that. And so he says he is eager to preach to establish them. And he is eager to preach the gospel to them because he knows it is for their health. It is for their good. And so he's preaching to the church who is at Rome. Notice next here, not only his proclamation of the gospel, then his confidence in the gospel. Look at verse 16. And he begins as uh, as he begins this proclamation, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. Now consider this in light of the glory of the gospel, how amazing it is that he would have to say he is not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he need to say this? 
Because the reality is, is that many, even who profess the name of Christ, can be ashamed of the gospel, can be embarrassed about the name of Jesus Christ for various reasons. Paul even had to encourage his son in the faith, Timothy. You'll remember in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, when he said, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. He had to encourage him. He was in danger of being ashamed. He was in danger of being reticent to fulfill the ministry that God had given him out of fear of persecution, out of fear of the consequences of it. And Paul had to remind him and say, do not be ashamed. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of self-control. He has given us a mission and he has given us the power and the ability to fulfill that mission. But again, why in light of such a glorious God, in light of such an indomitable truth, in light of such need and promise, would Christians be ashamed? Well, let me just suggest briefly a couple of reasons or a few reasons. One is because the gospel stands as an offense to the world. It confronts the very pride and the self-confidence and the sense of autonomy that men feel, and especially in our age, the master of our own fate, the captain of our soul, the one who makes decisions in reality based on how we feel and how we perceive things, and the gospel shatters all of that. But it always has. It exposes sin. John 3.19 tells us in the words of Jesus who said, Light has come into the world and men hate the light. Why? Because it exposes our deeds as evil. When light goes into the darkness, the darkness is exposed and the true nature of man is exposed. And it hates, he says in John chapter 3, the light because it exposes sin. The gospel truly preached reveals religious hypocrisy. Why did the religious leaders hate the light of the world, their own Messiah, the very incarnation of their own God? Why did they hate him? Because he exposed them. He says, you walk around and you go and travel wind and sea to make one convert. But when you get them, they're twice as much as, much as son of hell as yourself. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look good, but inside, you're full of dead men's bones. He says, you clean the outside of the dish, but inside, you're full of all kind of uncleanliness and impurity. He says, the prophets that you honor, you actually stand in the line of those who killed the prophets. And therefore, the guilt of them will fall on you. And they hated him. He exposed their ignorance. He exposed their hypocrisy. He exposed the duplicity of their very person and their ministry. And so they wanted to kill him. And the true gospel preached does that. It is because the gospel truly preached makes every human work and effort useless. Even the Apostle Paul said, as you'll remember in Philippians chapter 3... That all of his striving, all of his morality, all of his religious discipline and energy and knowledge amounted to this rubbish. Rubbish that he couldn't wait to shed himself from. Because when he had seen Christ, he understood how empty all of that was and how foolish he had been. And he needed a savior. It is a reason some Christians are ashamed as well because then... It, when it confronts the world, it also brings the ridicule and the hatred of the world. Paul said to the Corinthians in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. Because it confronts the world and the world suppresses the truth when they hear it and with minds blinded, unable to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, they then 
reject and ridicule and resist the true proclamation of the gospel. And that can be intimidating to some. Another reason is because we are so tempted to want the approval of men. We somehow gauge our faithfulness by how much the world likes us. So much of the church does that. However much admiration it can gain from the world, they see that as a validation of their ministry rather than a rebuke. And Jesus told the leaders, uh, the religious leaders of the Jews, is that they seek the approval of men. And that the things that they love and that the world loves, God actually hates. James warned the church, he says, to be a friend with the world is to be at hostility with God. And so we are tempted to want the approval of man and the approval of the world rather than the God whom we cannot see. And so Paul said more than one time in his epistles, but once in Galatians, he says, if he were trying to please men, he would not be a faithful servant of Christ Jesus. And so there's that temptation even for believers to be ashamed. And so Paul had to say right up front, I am not ashamed of the gospel that I'm going to proclaim to you. Every single word that I will declare and that I will put in writing, I say to the glory of God and without shame. And indeed, this shame then causes many to try to lessen the offense and to present a Christ that is more acceptable to men. We won't spend a lot of time, but let me just mention one passage. Referring to the last days, he told his son in the faith, again, Timothy and 2 Timothy, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Well, there is much more on that. But here we are to understand that the gospel is not our shame, it is our glory. We are to glory in the name of Christ Jesus. We are to glory in the truth of God. We are to, without shame, rather than fearing the censure of the world, rather expose their hypocrisy and rather expose their lies and their their lies that are to the destruction of human flourishing and the human soul and proclaim to them the very message by which alone salvation can come for there is salvation in no other name given among heaven other than the name of Christ Jesus. This means then that the gospel has to begin with the truth and the truth is the revelation of the reality of God, his authority, his nature and in revealing the reality of God it exposes to us the reality of man made in God's image and standing in rebellion to him who is our creator. So what is the message of the gospel that he's not ashamed of? It is God's rescue of man from sin through Christ. That is the power of the gospel as well. Look at verse 16 and note the power of the gospel. It's the proclamation of the gospel. And here is the power of the gospel. He says, for it is the power of God for salvation, to salvation for everyone who believes. The power of God for salvation. Salvation from what? Salvation from the power and the condemnation of sin. Again, that's where it begins, has to begin. That's where it begins with Paul. In verse 18, you're well familiar, he then begins this extended explanation with, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth is unrighteous, in unrighteousness. And this is where the gospel must begin in order for its power to be made known. It must begin with man's helplessness and pitiful condition in sin under God's condemnation. This is why he will spend the next 
two chapters, essentially, from all the way to the end of chapter 3, laboring to show this from all angles, that the Gentile world, the religious Jewish world, are all under sin and all equally need God's salvation. He sums it up in this way, that part of the argument. He says, what then? Are we better than they, speaking to Jews? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. He ends that section there where he, with these words. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And that's where it begins, is that we are sinners. We have within us, inborn in us from the very moment of conception, sin, corruption, pollution, rebellion towards God, hostility towards the truth of God and towards his holiness and towards the law of God, which he'll say in chapter 8. Have you come to understand that? We're going to hear the testimonies of those in the waters of baptism, and that was what they came to understand by the gracious work of God in their hearts. Have you come to understand that? So ask yourself when you hear these testimonies, is that true of me? Not do I acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. Maybe you don't, but even if you do. Not that you acknowledge that alone. Not that you can simply say that, yes, I am in a general vague category of sinners and that I'm not perfect and I know Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. That's not the question. The question is, have you personally within yourself come to understand and to feel the guilt and the pollution that is you outside of Christ and that is in you? Have you felt the desperation inside of your heart that you need a savior and you need a salvation that you cannot produce before God? That's what we must feel before we feel the power and that's what we must come to know before we know the salvation of God and the power of God in salvation. To say it is the power of God in salvation is essentially to say that it, is, it requires power from God and it is only God's power, it is only God's working that can bring about this salvation. But he says it is to all who believe, to all who believe. Faith is what is required But note that faith is not what man contributes in the sense of doing his part. Faith is a recognition of need and a receiving of what has been accomplished on behalf or on our behalf, accomplished by another. It says with the hymn writer, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Faith is not a work. It's not the product of the insight or virtue of certain people able to see the reality of the gospel themselves. It's not the spiritually perceptive person. It's not the morally virtuous person who's somehow able within themselves to have an insight into the things that those who reject the gospel are not able to have, and therefore they exercise faith out of something in themselves. No, that's not the case. The reality is, as Paul describes, there is none who understands and there is none who seeks for God in chapter 3. He says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. So faith is required of man, faith must be exercised by man, but faith can only come as a gift of God in the working of the Holy Spirit to open blind eyes to give sight, to open and give life to a dead heart. But seeing that condition, seeing that reality, eyes open to see the true condition of ourselves and the holiness of God and the provision of Christ, 
Those who know the power of God, not only in the accomplishment of salvation and what Christ did, but also in the sinner themselves in enabling them to see that work of God in Christ and to believe, lay hold of that work and experience his power unto salvation. That's the glorious, gracious work of God in the gospel. But let's look very quickly at this last here. The righteousness of the gospel. What is it that is received in the gospel? He says this. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. This little phrase, the righteousness of God, is at the very heart of the gospel. It is at the very heart of God's saving accomplishments in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is at the very heart of man's need and God's provision. That little phrase, the righteousness of God, in fact, is a main theme throughout the whole book of Revelation. Now, there are two ways that this has generally been understood. One is righteousness as an attribute of God. In other words, saying that God is righteousness, God's holiness, God's holy and righteous nature is what is revealed in the gospel. God's holy nature and that all he does and commands is right and just and good and true. And it's revealed then that that's what we are to conform to. This understanding of the phrase righteousness of God is what brought a great deal of struggle to the reformer, Martin Luther. That's how he understood it. And so he sought and gave great energy and went through great suffering even to the point near death where he sought always to try to match up somehow to this righteousness of God so that he could know the peace of God. And yet it produced just the opposite. It produced angst. It produced fear. Even at one point where he said he hated God. He hated the God that was revealed in Scripture in that little phrase, the righteousness of God. Because it merely showed him what he cannot do. It merely showed him his failure. It merely showed him his need. It could not produce righteousness in him. Another misapplication under that understanding is to simply diminish what the righteousness of God actually is and to make it something that is achievable. That's precisely what the Jews did. And so he says in chapter 10, he says, Not knowing about the righteousness of God, they have established their own righteousness. Something that they could accomplish through their works of the law. It's the kind of righteousness that Paul said, according to the law, he was found blameless in Philippians chapter 3. But it was that same righteousness that he counted rubbish later. To truly understand God's righteousness as something we must attain is the height of hopelessness. Paul, even as a believer, said, I know nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh and wretched man that I am who will save me from the body of this death. Well, that's one understanding. What is the other understanding and what is the correct understanding? The righteousness of God as the provision of God. In other words, not the righteousness that God requires us to meet before we can know his salvation, but the righteousness that he accomplishes and gives and grants to the believing sinner in Jesus Christ. That is the glory of what was discovered by Martin Luther. It is the glory and the wonder of Jesus Christ. It is, not a, it is not a dismissing of the law of God. It is not a dismissing of the righteousness of God uh, revealed in the law. As a matter of fact, he says in chapter, verse 31 of chapter 3, Do we nullify the law of God through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. How is the law established through the personal work of Jesus Christ? Because God didn't set aside his righteous demands. He fulfilled them himself through the incarnate Son of God. That is why. Because Christ came to do what we cannot do. 
He established the righteousness of the law by being born under the law and meeting all of its righteous requirements for us through his perfectly obedient life, through his perfect love for the Father, through his perfect love to the neighbor, totally and absolutely without sin, and then fulfilling the righteous justice of the law and the condemnation he bore in our place on the cross when he suffered as an atonement for our sin, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, the righteousness that God requires from man was completed for us by God in this person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is then that righteousness of God that is given to the believing sinner that counts them righteous before God. Well said by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin placed on him, he on the cross treated as if he had committed the sins, every sin of those he came to redeem. And then the righteousness of Christ, that perfect life of Christ, counted to, imputed, reckoned to those who believe. Therefore, it is in that great phrase of the reformers, an alien righteousness. It's not our righteousness, it is a righteousness outside of us. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, through faith in which we are saved and redeemed and it is the gospel. He says, The righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. In brief, it is that faith that looks to Christ for our righteousness. And it is that faith that's willing to turn from everything else to embrace that Christ and to follow him. It is a faith that repentantly believes and repentantly believes not only unto salvation, but as the evidence of faith all through life. Luther began, as you'll remember, the, the document on nailed to the doors of Wittenberg that the all of life is a life of repentance and it is that which is the reality of faith. Now, before we come in here, let me end with these well-known words of Luther in his discovery of the gospel. He says, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God or the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishment in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. And I had not, no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did, not love a just, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear apostle and had great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. And then I grasped that hither, that hither justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise and the whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me an inexpressibly seen as great love. This passage, of, this passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. And to understand this phrase and to understand what God has accomplished for us to Christ is indeed the very gate to heaven, the very entrance of heaven, the very hope of those who know Christ, the very joy and blessing of a Christian's soul, a Christian who is one in truth. And it is that great reality of the grace of God that's going to be proclaimed in these testimonies. So as we're going to pray and as we're going to prepare uh, to hear these testimonies, again, be considering your own life. Be considering 
the reality of your own response to Christ and to the revelation of Scripture. So let me pray. Father, thank you for these great and glorious truths revealed on the pages of Scripture, proclaimed by your people and made real in the life of those whom you grant the gift of faith. They are also, it is also the message and the proclamation and the command from heaven to all men. And it is the obedience of faith. It is a command to be believed as well as a glorious message to be received for our salvation. And so I pray as we hear these testimonies, we would be, we who know you, refreshed in remembering your grace to us. And again, that those outside of Christ would be called, even this very day, to put their trust in him totally. And to know what Luther expressed in these words, entrance into the gates of heaven. And we pray this in your matchless name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as we prepare to hear these testimonies in baptism, please stand with us and we'll sing All I Have is Christ, which is a great entrance as we uh, ponder the words that are about to be heard and as we hear all these testimonies that point to the fact that salvation is by Christ alone and he redeems us from our sins. Philippians 3, 7 through 9 says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Amen. Sing all I have is Christ. 